Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, shall we just have the passage up again, please, Scott? We did read the passage when we first came together, but let's just read it all together again. Can you see it? Warming up. His words being revealed. There you go. Uh, this is the passage from Mark. So hang on, whilst we just wait a moment, let's invite the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that you've been with us, uh, you are with us, and you will stay with us. And we thank you for all that you've been saying to us already this morning. We thank you for the way that you're moving amongst us. But Lord, as we read your word now, will you just highlight Bring your revelation of the things that you want to show us today. In your name we ask it. Amen. So let's read together. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? And they said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in highest heaven! So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. Look, after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Wonderful. So we now know the uh, scripture. We've read it a couple of times. Sometimes we need to read it, don't we? Uh, can I just ask, can we have the lights put back up, please? Because otherwise I might struggle in seeing my notes. Basically, here's Jesus. He's going on a day trip, isn't he? Going on a day trip to Jerusalem. He goes into Jerusalem and then he comes out again. What's happened immediately before this is that he's been traveling around Judea with his disciples. He's been preaching, teaching. There's been amazing healings. Um, it's during that time. Yeah, probably we can turn the passage off now for the moment. Please, Scott. As they're traveling around the different villages, they're actually headed towards Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus knew why they were headed there. He knew what was going to happen there. The disciples probably didn't. But as he's been moving along, the disciples stay with him, but also they're gathering quite a crowd of people that also are following him because they're amazed at the miracles that they're seeing, especially when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And I love the fact that in this passage, when they get to the Mount of Olives, 
uh, when they get to Bethany, he says to two of his disciples, go here, do that, say this, and they went, and it happened just as he said. And there's part of me that thinks, aren't we a bit like that? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus said, do this, say that, and it will happen, just like that? It seems so easy, doesn't it? Um, And I just think, yeah, that's really nice. They must have been encouraged to find it just as he'd said it would be. But he rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. They go from the Mount of Olives. That's really important. And they go into the city. He enters the temple and he looks around. But then he goes back and rests in Bethany with his disciples what happens as he's and the thing is it's a very familiar passage to us isn't it it's one that we've read many times we celebrate it on palm sunday we think about the rejoicing but i'm going to pick out a few particular bits from it for us what's happening as he's on that donkey on the way into jerusalem the crowd extends there's more and more people people are gathering People are rejoicing, they're praising him. And they're really praising because of, they've seen so many amazing things happen. And they're watching this man, this Jesus, and what's in their hearts? There's that anticipation. They're hoping that he's the Messiah. They're hoping that he's the one, the one that's been promised through all the Old Testament scriptures, the one that's going to come and deliver them, the one that's going to set them free, the one that's going to overrule Rome and, or overthrow Rome and set them free from the bondage that they were feeling. Because we know that on that Sunday, as they're going into Jerusalem, that it's not just those that have been traveling with Jesus. But crowds come out from the city. Now, why were there crowds in the city at that time? It was because it was Passover week. The people were gathering in Jerusalem for Passover, that amazing celebration of when they celebrated the fact that Jesus had, or God had set them free from slavery, when God had brought them out of Egypt. And we know that as a people, as a race of people, the Jewish people, they'd had a long history of being captive and then released by other nations. And at this point, they were under that rule of Rome. They were desperate for the Messiah to come, to overthrow Rome so that they would be free again. They knew of Jesus. They knew of the wonderful things that he'd done, especially, as I said earlier, that raising of Lazarus. I mean, that was the talk of the town. You know, it's like, my goodness, this guy's even raised somebody from the dead. And they were interested. So Jesus had their attention. He captured their hearts. And when they saw him riding on the donkey into Jerusalem, I'm sure that they thought, finally, here he is. Here's our Messiah. Finally, this is the Messiah who's going to come and set us free. But let's just think about the crowd for a moment. Have you ever been in a great big crowd? We're quite a crowd of people here this morning, but have you been in a crowd where there's thousands of people? Are you one of the people that would be right up the front, see what's happening? Would you be, sometimes we can be in a crowd of people, can't we, where we know what's going on, we know what the crowd's for. But we might also be those people that we like to stand back a bit. 
We don't want to be right in the front. We don't necessarily want to be seen. We want to be hold back and just watch from a distance. And I was thinking, it was, reminded me as I was thinking about a crowd of people many years ago, Glenn and I visited Rome. And we went to St. Peter's Square because that's what you do when you're in Rome. You go and look at this huge basilica. But we got into the square and it was packed. There were so many people. The whole square was packed. And we could see on the steps of the basilica that something was happening. But we hadn't got a clue. Hadn't got a clue what was going on. We knew it was something special. But there was a real sense of anticipation. And I think in that crowd of people that were cheering for Jesus as he was riding into Jerusalem, I think there would have been people who hadn't got a clue. But they were just there because the atmosphere was good. There was a real carnival atmosphere. Now, I did find a couple of pictures online, but they don't really predict... You'll see it in a minute when it warms up. They don't really show it. So I actually want you this morning just to use your imaginations, okay? God is a creative God, so he can help you try and imagine what this was like. What was this crowd like? What were the feelings that were going on in the crowd? Some of his disciples probably thought, hey, this is really good. This is good. People are finally acknowledging Jesus for who he is. There would have been that excitement. So this might remind some of you of your Sunday school lessons, mightn't it? It's that sort of picture, isn't it? Pictures that we've had. Pictures where we see Jesus on that donkey with the crowds around, and they're cheering him. So it's good to think about the crowd, think about who these people were. Because also within the crowd, we know that there were people who weren't happy. They didn't like the influence that Jesus was having. It was unsettling them, and they were really unhappy about it. So they were grumbling and moaning. Thank you, Scott. But why does Jesus do this? Why does he go in such a manner as he has done? We, we see him there behaving in a way that he doesn't normally behave. He's allowing that public display of worship. It's an open and deliberate declaration of his identity for those who can see it. And if you remember last week, Tim was saying, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water outside of the boat, they didn't recognize him. So sometimes we can see Jesus, but we don't see him. We don't recognize him. And I think, again, that's what's happening for lots of people in this situation. They didn't see his true identity. As we said, there's already wide speculation that Jesus might be the Messiah. He'd already told his disciples that he was. But by this act, by being on this donkey, doing this journey, this is Jesus saying, yes, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. This is me coming this is me coming, I am your Messiah. He showed himself to be the king, to be the rightful inheritor of David's throne. But he was also showing what sort of king he would be. His kingdom is not of this world, his kingdom is different. I mean, he chose fishermen as his closest allies. Not not many kings would do that. But we know that at the time, neither the crowd nor the disciples really understood what was going on. There's a clue in the whole thing about the Mount of Olives. 
And you may well know it. I didn't know quite... I knew the Mount of Olives featured many times in the Bible, but I didn't realize quite how significant it was and quite how early on it's indicated at. So starting their journey from the Mount of Olives was no accident. The Mount of Olives was more than just a geographical marker. It had messianic implications. Ezekiel, so we know Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament, in one of his visions, he saw the glory of the Lord going up from the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. This was the Mount of Olives. This marked the departure of God's glory from Jerusalem. And much later, in another vision, the glory of the Lord returning to Jerusalem from the east, thus implying that God's glory would re-enter Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives in the same way it had left. We see in the last chapter of Zechariah that he foretells of the day when the Lord will return to fight for his people, and guess where he stands? At the Mount of Olives. So the people expected that when the Messiah would come to deliver them, he would come from the Mount of Olives. And so I've I've said it's no accident that that's where Jesus' journey on the donkey started. Also in Zechariah we read, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, in his whole act of that day, he's fulfilling prophecy. He's being intentional. He's deliberately presenting himself as their Messiah. So let's think for a moment about the donkey, okay? The donkey was tied up, okay? Donkeys get tied up all the time. Why is this significant, that he was tied up? Well, in one of the earliest prophecies about the Messiah, in Genesis 49, Jacob, if you remember Jacob, when he was the father of many sons, And when he was dying, he gathered his sons around him and he prophesied about each one of them and their descendants. Of particular interest is his prophecy about his son Judah. King David came from the line of Judah and later prophecy made it clear that the Messiah would also come from Judah in the line of David. And this is what it says. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. He ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. So one preacher, Ray Fowler, thought really significant that the donkey was tied. Another thing we know about the donkeys is, well, we know about the animals in the Old Testament that if they were meant for sacred or royal use, they had to be pure. They had to be unscathed, didn't they? Um, They weren't used for ordinary tasks if they were going to be a sacrifice. And so this young donkey had never been ridden. There was a purity there. It had been set apart by God for this very special task. But the donkey is also a symbol of peace. Priests would often use donkeys to ride around on. But did you know that even kings, if they came into a city on a donkey, that was them declaring that they're coming in peace. So 
I mean, I always thought, oh, the kings never rode the donkeys, but actually they did. It was a symbol of peace if they rode it rather than when they came in on their big horses and stallions. Um, so as Jesus is riding the donkey, he's not coming in as that military conqueror upon a war horse. He's not there as a political revolutionary of the kind that the people were hoping for, or some of them were anyway. But his purpose was to break the power of sin. His mission wasn't to come as that high official with all the pomp and ceremony. He came to change their concept of who the Messiah was. He was coming as the saviour of peace who had been sent to save all men. He was coming to show men that God is the God of love and reconciliation. By choosing a donkey rather than a horse, he showed that he was coming in peace. And for those who had been in the know, they should have recognised that. They should have recognized that scene that he was coming in peace. The other thing, if you think about donkeys, what were they used for? They used to carry people's burdens. And therefore, we can think of the donkey as a symbol of service as well. And of course, we know that our Savior came to serve and to carry people's burdens. What about the garments, the throwing down of the garments and the palm branches, the waving of the palm branches? What's that all about? Throwing, well, wave, waving the palm branches is often, well, it's used in celebrations. It was used in the, the celebration if somebody had won a war. It was what was available there to wave. But the garments, they threw down. And we know in another passage where it talks about when they recognize their king, they put the garments down. So it was a common thing to put the garments down in front of a king. And the reason they did this, it was a sign of them submitting. That sign of submission, submitting themselves to the king. And so that's what they were doing. Another thing that the Lord revealed was that when he sent the disciples to get that donkey, he told them to say, the Lord has, sent, has need of it. So again, he's saying, I am the Lord. What about the people's praises? They're all shouting out, praising him. And as I said, there were people in the crowds who weren't happy about this. And the other thing I was thinking about, when he was on a donkey, he's not way up on a horse. There's not all this, he's right next to the people, isn't he? So people can approach him on the donkey. And who approached him? The Pharisees. They were angered. They didn't like it. They didn't like what was happening. They didn't like all these people crying out Hosanna in the highest. And so the Pharisees came to him and said, will you rebuke your disciples? And what does Jesus say? He says, yeah, the Pharisees said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I wonder when they were asking him to do that, did they understand all the signs, these Pharisees? Had they made the connection between all the different points in the story that was affirming Jesus as Messiah? They might have done. But Jesus didn't rebuke the people, but instead he affirmed them. He affirmed their praise by saying to the Pharisees that, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. So what does he mean by that? Well, there's three possible interpretations of that. One is that it was impossible for the disciples to keep quiet as it would be for the stones to cry out. The Messiah is here. How can they not rejoice? Or another interpretation is that 
Jesus is worthy of praise. And if we do not give it to him, God will find some other means, even if it means making the stones cry out instead. But a third interpretation sees the stones crying out, not in praise, but rather in judgment of those who do evil. And we find parallels to this in the Old Testament in Habakkuk where we read that the stones of the wall will cry out. The beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town of crime. In this interpretation, the stones would be crying out in condemnation of either the disciples who withhold their praises or perhaps the Pharisees who seek to silence them. Whichever Jesus meant, it's clear that he affirms the people's praises over the Pharisees' objections. So Jesus is clearly presenting himself as the Messiah. The people proclaim him as Messiah, and Jesus accepts their praises as the Messiah. Interestingly enough, some of those people in the crowd would have been the same people that when they realized that he wasn't going to deliver them from Rome, when he wasn't going to overthrow Rome, their cries change, no longer Hosanna, but the turn to crucify. So what can we learn from this? Let's just think a few thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. He does have a perfect plan for us, even when we can't see it. But we need to recognize the one who has true power. We live in a society where we see so much power is given through status. And is that true power? No, it's not. You take that status away from people and they will fall. They will be as nothing. But we need to remember that God is the God of true power. What about the power that we have? What about the power that we have over other people? How do we use that? Do we use it wisely? And thinking again about the crowds, there was a disconnect, wasn't there? There was a disconnect between the Jesus that they wanted, the Messiah that they wanted, and what he was actually coming to do. They didn't have the full picture like we have the full picture. They couldn't see what was going to happen in a few days' time. We're blessed that we've got that. We know that. But somehow in their hearts there was this disconnect. They desperately wanted Jesus to come and deliver them. They had no idea how he was going to do that. And I think sometimes for us that we have that disconnect. We have that disconnect that we, we, want, we want God, we want Jesus to be a certain way. And he's not always that way. And again, like Tim was reminding us last week, he is always with us as we go through things, but he won't always deliver us from what we go through because we often have to go through it. He is our deliverer, but not always in the way that we want him to be. So again, I want you to think about yourselves. Think about that crowd. Now, in that crowd, there would have been people with true faith, true faith in who God was and is. There would have been those that were hoping for someone to come along and fight their battles for them and bring relief and make their life easier for them. There would have been just the sightseers hanging around, just there for the good bits. And there were those that were unhappy. They didn't like what Jesus was doing because it was unsettling their lives. 
And my question to us this morning is, where are we in that crowd? Where are we? We come here on a Sunday morning. We've had a wonderful time of worship. Do we carry that with us for the rest of the week? Are our whole hearts submitted to the Lord? Who is it in that crowd that you identify with? Obviously, as I say, we've got the whole story. So we need be in no doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is our Savior. He came to bring that complete fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He came to deliver all people, not just the Jewish people in Jerusalem. He came to deliver all of us everywhere from the power of sin. It is right to serve him as king. Will you bow your knee to Christ? I believe as a congregation we've done that this morning. We've bowed our knee to Christ as we've worshipped him. But will we always submit to him as Lord and serve him day by day, moment by moment? We do proclaim his praises. It's wonderful that we can gather here this morning and join together and praise his holy name. And Jesus is the only one, isn't he? As we've already sung this morning, he's the only one that's worthy of that praise. And if we don't praise him, the rocks really will cry out. There's um, a few, few thoughts um, thinking about the donkey. Uh, the donkey was young, inexperienced, hadn't been trained up. When Jesus calls us, he knows quite often that we're unequipped to perform some of the assignments that he has for us. We're untrained to carry out a particular mission, but you are still needed and you're still requested. Jesus did not request the most eloquent of animals. He did not request a camel or an elephant or a great big beast. But when he calls us into service to join him in his mission like the cult, we're we are to carry Jesus to the multitudes, delivering him to the people. He is the main message. The cult carried Jesus to Jerusalem and to a multitude of people. We can do that because he equips us to do that. And do you know what? We're most fulfilled when we're in the service of Christ. Without him, all our best efforts are like filthy rags and amounting to nothing. But when we lift up Jesus, however, we are no longer ordinary people, but we're key players in God's plan to redeem the world. And as we've already said a number of times, we know that that's not the end. We know from Revelation that the next time Jesus comes, he won't be coming peacefully on a donkey. But he'll be coming on a white horse. And everyone will see him. And he will judge. So that's why he's not coming in peace anymore. He will come and he will judge. We need him to judge us now. We need him to judge us. We need him to be the Lord in our lives. That we may submit to him and allow him to have his way. But when that time comes... What a triumphal entry that will be when Jesus returns, not to offer himself for sin as he did with the first coming, but to offer eternal salvation for those who believe. Hebrews says, And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, 
So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. There's something here about God's revelation. What's he revealing to you right now? His Holy Spirit has the power to show us things. Some of these things, some things may be buried deep within us. Some things we need to see around us, what's going on around us. He will reveal to us, just as he was revealing through different signs in this journey, he will reveal to us where he wants us, who he wants us to speak to. Who should we approach? And thinking back to yesterday, and Antonio was saying about Gareth who came in, and she said that he came in, and through, through time, he then prayed a prayer of commitment. But do you know that guy, when he was first approached on the street, he walked straight on by. He walked straight on by. I was going, we're offering prayer today. He didn't want to know. He was walking down the street. He got another three or four shops down the road and he stopped and he turned round and he came back. Now, Antonia didn't know that because she was inside here for good. But he turned around and he came back. That's surprising. I mean, praise God for that. God can use us. We can bring that revelation of Christ to people because we have the whole story. We're not like that crowd who were limited in their understanding. We have the whole picture. I want to finish by reading the bit from Revelation. When Jesus comes again, because it gives us hope. It gives us joy that we know that Christ is there for us. And he does have the victory. He has won the battles. Then I saw heaven opened. And a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He is the only one that has true power. Don't get sucked in to artificial power. God is the one who is the giver of life. It's absolutely right that we submit ourselves to him, that we surrender to him and allow him, as we've been singing, allow him to lead us that we will see his kingdom come and his purposes worked out. The Lord bless you all. Amen. Lord Jesus, I want to pray. I want to start by saying, will you forgive us, Lord, for the times that we don't see you? Will you forgive us for the times where we're so tied up in our own stuff that we don't give you the space and time that you need? And Lord, I thank you that your word promises us that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You cleanse us from our sins and you turn our sins from scarlet to become white as snow. And Lord, we ask for that this morning, that you would turn our sins from scarlet to white as snow. But Lord, I pray that you'd also give us the revelation that we need, that we will understand because our perceptions aren't always correct. Our perceptions aren't always right. So help us to see as you want us to see. Help us to look beyond the surface, to hear what you're saying. Sometimes we get caught up, Lord, in our own ways, in our own habits, in the things that we do. But actually, maybe, Lord, you want to show us how you want to tweak us, how you want to change us. Lord Jesus, as you came to Jerusalem on that day, you knew what lay ahead, but you were there proclaiming loud and clear that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But not everybody saw, not everybody understood. Lord, will you increase our understanding? Will you expand our revelation that we will see where you are working? We will see the things that you want us to see, that we may lift you high, that we may exalt you in all that we do, however small a task, that we will exalt you, that you will be exalted in our lives, that we will be a people that proclaim you, not just here in the safety of our congregation together, but with other people who many may be against you, many may not want to hear about you, But help us be those that carry you, carry that revelation of you and proclaim you to all peoples that we will see a change in our community, in our city, in our land and across the world. And we ask that in your precious name. Amen. Thank you very much, Jenny.